fate has chosen Klaus Schwab to play the role of real-life Bond villain. I mean, he is like uber-Bond villain Ernst Stavro Blofeld, sitting at the head of a long table petting a cat while he uh, unveils his plan for global domination. I mean, it's like the World Economic Forum is the real-life specter. Just so you don't think that I'm, you know, trying to make a mountain out of a molehill here, bear in mind the man we're talking about here, the, the outsized ambitions of a guy like this. Schwab wants to enact a radical environmental agenda, the chief aim of which is the decrease of the global human population. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debates, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're going to be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. It's important to have a Christian worldview. The question becomes, how do we build that? How do we develop that? Oftentimes we have Bible teachers who are very faithful in teaching scripture, but don't ever quite make the connection with the outside world. Other times we have Bible teachers who don't really want to touch certain topics because they're just seen to be too toxic. At tomap.com, you are gonna find a wide range of issues being addressed to help you build out that Christian worldview. They're on things from, from suffering, uh, dealing with mental health, to racial reconciliation. These are all issues that you will find at tomap.com, and they'll help you to build out a Christian worldview and to flourish. I hope you learn a lot from the podcast, but you can go beyond the podcast to the courses that we offer at Tome. So I hope you'll take a look at them and sign up. To get access to more than 100 Tome courses, use the code IDEAS 
And for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all kinds of courses on a wide variety of subjects. Individuals with expertise, with experience in subjects that will be meaningful to you. So use the code IDEAS and for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all of them. Go to tomap.com. Back to the podcast. We must revitalize the global economy and accelerate its transition to net zero. We must preserve biodiversity by deploying nature-based solutions and we must narrow the gap between the rich and the poor to achieve more sustainable global development. So that's Klaus Martin Schwab. There you have the sole chairman and founder of the World Economic Forum laying out the quote-unquote global agenda. And that, that alone is an interesting thing. I mean, why does, why does anyone think it's their job to establish a global agenda? I mean, we have, you know, almost 200 countries in the world, and here's a guy who is not elected, but he has appointed himself as the kind of grand poobah whose job it is to set the global agenda. Uh, and in last week's podcast, we talked about the World Economic Forum, what the World Economic Forum is, and I touched just a little bit on who... Klaus Schwab is, but I didn't go into any depth into who Klaus Schwab is. So in this particular episode, we want to talk about who he is. Schwab is the original international man of mystery. And that is because I realized when I was doing research on Schwab, and originally as part of a series that I was writing for the Daily Wire. I wrote a four-part series called The Great Jet Set. You can find it over there. Uh, it's behind a paywall. You can also find it on my website for free at LarryAlexTaunton.com. And um, anyway, so here I am doing this, this research on the World Economic Forum, which I've been doing for quite some time anyway. And on Klaus Schwab, because you see the guy's name popping up all the time. Who is he? And what you begin to discover is that it is the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes. I mean, you go down and it branches off and then it branches off again and it branches off. And you just keep going. And complicating this is the fact that I think quite deliberately as part of a PSYOP, some of the conspiracy theories are, are put out there by conservatives, but I think a lot of them are put out there by the left, by people who are running interference for Klaus Schwab in order to deflect from the truth. And we'll get to that in, uh, in just a minute. But just by way of methodology, the way you go about researching any topic, I, I, I want to give you this little bit of advice. Don't pursue the shiny object. Don't be distracted by the shiny object. You know, people want to focus on the, uh, you know, was there a, another shooter in the grassy knoll? Focus on what can be known. Focus on what can be known. Not the, not the 1% that can't be known, but the 99% that can be known. And your research, 
your research might eventually uncover some things that weren't previously known. But it is, it is important that you aren't distracted by the conspiracy theories. And I keep talking about conspiracy theories on this podcast because I want you to understand that what I reveal to you on this show are things that we know. I focus on the known. And conspiracy theories are, by definition, their secret. They are unknown. And so there are a lot of these weird things that are put out there about Klaus Schwab. I'm not interested in those things because what I do know about Klaus Schwab is disturbing enough. It's in and of itself, it's upsetting. And so don't be distracted by these things. And yet, finding almost any reliable biographical information about Klaus Schwab is almost impossible. No biographies that I know of. Not, almost nothing reliable uh, about the guy. I mean, you find facts, you know, things like he was born in Ravensburg, Germany in 1938. Okay, uh, fine. But not really a whole lot of things that explain, tell you about the man. Uh, New York Times journalist Peter S. Goodman, he wrote a book, which I've read, which is called um, Davos Man, How Billionaires Devoured the World. Davos Man is a collective term that is used for the billionaires who attend the World Economic Forum each year. And um, Goodman's book, it's, uh, listen, Goodman is on the left. Uh, his book is decidedly leftist, but I want to say this about his book. It's well-written. It's interesting. Uh, it's thoughtful. But I have this critique of the book. What is meant to be an expose of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum is really kind of thin on that kind of stuff. In other words, he, I mean, for instance, he says things like this, and it's mostly anecdotal. Schwab has frequently told his colleagues that he anticipates receiving a Nobel Peace Prize. Like the people he gathers annually in the Alps, Schwab is an exemplar of the force of pious words as prophylactic against the consequences of unsavory deeds. Okay, so the guy goes around and sort of brags about the fact that he deserves a Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, so he's, he's full of himself. And a lot of the criticisms are of a petty nature. Uh, when a forum employee who was late for a meeting once pulled into Schwab's spot in the parking lot, aware that the boss was overseas, he caught wind of it and insisted that she be fired. So these are Goodman's goods, the, the goods on Klaus Schwab. It's meant as expose material, and it's really kind of thin on that. I mean, what we know about Schwab goes well beyond this, but the reason that Goodman doesn't focus on the negative things that I will focus on in this podcast is because Goodman is on the left. In other words, his criticism of Schwab isn't that Schwab is, is some globalist hell-bent on global domination and forcing a, an environmental policy, um, <laughs> surveillance policy, all these kinds of things on... Uh, on a global population. Rather, his criticism is that he's a hypocrite and that he isn't actually doing it, you see. So my criticisms are very different. That said, the fact that these are 
the big criticisms of Goodman on Schwab, it does tell us something. And that is, again, here is a, a respected writer whose expose on Schwab in the World Economic Forum really isn't an expose at all. It, it's, it really just, it's, it's lacking in, in actual substance. But that actually tells us something. And part of what it tells us is that Klaus Schwab has an army, he has to, he has an army of monitors guarding his reputation on the internet. I mean, here's a guy who's managed to do what almost every drunk spring breaker has never been able to do, and that is to get something negative about themselves off the internet. And I actually counted the words. I mean, if you go to Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is... I mean, Wikipedia is not a source of actual information. It is more of a, it's more like Yelp. It's more of a, an indicator of people's interest in a subject. It's not Encyclopedia Britannica. But I went to his Wikipedia page and I actually counted the words there. And his entry is roughly 1,400 words at at the moment. I mean, somebody could add something, you know, during this show and add a, another thousand words. But his Wikipedia entrance is roughly 1,400 words. Now, that's about the same word count as Gabrielle Carteris, who is the president of the Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> so, I mean, isn't that kind of odd that here's a guy with, with global ambition who sees himself as a head of state and wants to be treated like one. And yet, when you look at his Wikipedia page, what you find, again, is more of an inventory of accomplishments, but not things that actually tell you about the man. He has this honorary doctorate. He has this knighthood. He uh, would, you know, was educated here. He's written these books an inventory of facts, but not things that actually tell you about the man. So 1,400 words, roughly the same as Gabrielle Carteris. Now, George Floyd has more than double that at 3,100 words. Mr. Bean gets 6,400 words on Wikipedia. I mean, do you kind of see my point here is when you go to do research on Klaus Schwab, what you discover is something like a cardboard cutout. That is to say, the outline of a man is there, but there is a huge gap. Something is missing. And that tells us that he has an army, he must, of internet uh, monitors who are deleting anything that they don't like that he wouldn't like about himself. And why not? I mean, this is a guy who's supremely well-connected with big tech. You have, um, you know, members of Google who are on the World Economic Forum board. Must be pretty easy to get things done when you want to get them done. I mean, you Google almost any public conservative and you will discover a mountain of negative information. In fact, Google will prioritize the information in such a way that negative stuff is what comes up first. Just for the heck of it, go in uh, Google, say, Rush Limbaugh. See what you get. See if it all comes back as you know, really positive stuff or it's extremely negative stuff that comes back. Google will, will prioritize it in such a way 
as to uh, put him in the darkest light. So does Wikipedia. His Wikipedia page will read like a, uh, a script for, you know, the, the, the part for Freddy Krueger in a Friday the 13th horror movie. That's the way it will read. So Schwab has obviously worked at protecting his reputation online and only putting out the kind of bits that he wants to put out, that he wants other people to know about him. And um, just so you don't think that I'm you know, trying to make a mountain out of a molehill here, bear in mind the man we're talking about here, the, the outsized ambitions of a guy like this. Schwab wants to enact a radical environmental agenda, the chief aim of which is the decrease of the global human population. Not, not the decrease of the deer population, not the decrease of the roach population, but the decrease of the human population. That's what the guy wants to do. He also wants to substitute the beef on your menu with bugs. Again, ladies and gentlemen, not making this stuff up. Go to the World Economic Forum's own website, and you will see that they have little videos, um, articles that talk about the benefits of eating bugs. Listen to uh, Bill Gates. He's talking about the same thing. Why do you think they are making war on farmers? Why do you think that they're making war on ranchers, cattle ranchers? Because they maintain that cattle flatulence, cattle farts, are a greater danger to the world population than, say, megalomaniacal globalists. <laughs> Why would maintain are a much greater danger to freedom. They're a much greater threat to everything that sensible people hold dear. He also is a big fan, Schwab that is, he's a big fan of enacting global surveillance. He wants to chip you. If you go on the World Economic Forum website, you will find him in it. You can also find this on YouTube, elsewhere. You can find him in a discussion. And he's interviewing Sergey Brin, who is the co-founder of Google. And he's talking very excitedly about the day when we will all have a brain chip. <laughs> and the way this will be sold to you is for convenience and for safety. Don't have your credit card? Don't worry about it. You're chipped. Don't know where the kids are? Don't worry about it. They're chipped. You can locate them. Don't worry about your passport. You're chipped. This is the way this will be sold. But of course, these things can be used. You know, we're always fighting. I used to always tell my students, you need to be aware of the fact that the, there's a great tension between freedom and security. Freedom and security. It's a balancing act. And uh, Dostoevsky, more than a century ago, uh, almost 150 years ago, in a very famous chapter, in fact, you can buy the chapter all by itself, uh, in the Brothers Karamazov, uh, the chapter is called The Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor. And in that particular chapter of that book, Dostoevsky, who is sometimes referred to as a prophet, 
for good reason. I will make frequent reference to Dostoevsky, by the way, on this show. And it is because there is no one who better understood what socialism was without the benefit of hindsight than Dostoevsky. He hadn't yet seen the totalitarian regimes that were coming. He hadn't seen the genocides that were coming. He hadn't even seen a socialist state. He just was a former socialist and he knew a number of socialists and he studied their ideology and what they were and he saw it as fundamentally godless. He understood that socialism is, Marxism is, uh, fascism too. They're all atheism masquerading as political philosophy. He understood this. He knew this. And he did it without the benefit of hindsight. And in The Grand Inquisitor, Dostoevsky says, basically, there will come a time when people will say to the state, make us your slaves, but give us bread. Make us your slaves, but give us bread. In other words, where people will voluntarily hand over their freedom in exchange for a tyrannical, paternalistic kind of government. We are moving in that direction. We are moving rapidly in that direction. And of course, much of the world already is there, is already living under that. But here's a guy, Klaus Schwab is this guy with these massive ambitions. And yet, his Wikipedia page says, oh, he has... Honorary doctorates. He's the founder and chair of the World Economic Forum. Google him. The first page of results will be glowing about Schwab. They'll be glowing. So you would think that someone would have done an expose on this guy. I mean, a real expose, not Goodman's expose, but a, but a real one. And if nature abhors a vacuum, human nature delights in filling it. And that's where the conspiracy theories come in, where people begin to speculate, ah, was he the, was he the, you know, the secret child of Adolf Hitler? Was he, uh, uh, was he's, Ava Braun's love, you know, what, what is he? And so it's given a ray to all these crazy conspiracy theories. And that has not gone, on, gone unnoticed by major media. USA Today, Newsweek, Reuters, BBC, and many others have seized upon the conspiracy theories to run fact-check stories. Fact-check stories. And let me explain to you something about fact-checks that's very important that you understand. Let's just say that Adolf Hitler were alive today and that Joseph Goebbels were, was in charge, his propaganda minister was in charge of, you know, controlled many aspects of media as he did in, uh, you know, in the 1930s and, and uh, through the end of World War II in 1945. What they would do is say this. They would take something that is real about Adolf Hitler, but position it in such a way as to make it seem like it's not real. And in other words, a story would be run like this. Fact check. Did Hitler say, I want to kill six and a half million Jews? And then they would say, this story was put out by a bunch of conspiracy theorists online who are maintaining that, that it's Hitler's program to destroy the Jews. But Hitler never said that I want to kill 
six and a half million Jews. And see, by implication, a fact check like that is sort of exonerating Hitler by implying that none of the agenda is actually true. But while he might not have actually said, I want, you know, word for word, I want to kill six and a half million Jews, he did want to destroy European Jews. You see, so the idea is to mislead you and say, well, he never said that. Oh, but he wants to do it, but he may not have said that word for word. And this is what has been done with Klaus Schwab. For instance, uh, BBC seized upon the conspiracy theories as an opportunity to bu publish a bizarre defense of Schwab uh, and his Great Reset, what Schwab refers to as the Great Reset. And, and a document where this came from is a 1991 document put out by the Club of Rome that's called the First Global Revolution, in which they referred to something called the Great Trans, uh, the great transition. And Schwab, you know, kind of reworded it and stole it. But in BBC's telling of it, the Great Reset is really nothing other than a benign attempt to create a better world. Nothing to see here, people. Nothing to see. Nothing for you to, um, to worry about. Now, I have had my own personal experience with BBC, which wants to, once used to be a revered news agency. I did one of their most popular shows. I was invited on a show called Newsnight. And just to give you a little glimpse of how media can work, when, you, um, in fact, uh, my, my producer over here could explain to you how these kinds of things um, are done. But here I am in a multi-camera shoot. They invite me on. And what you don't see is that at different times, the camera, when the camera goes off of me onto the interviewer, he's pounding away at me, but my mic is off. And you see, I have no opportunity to respond to him. At the end of the interview, they bring another guy on, Lawrence Krauss, who is an ass. He's an astrophysicist, or was, I think he's been fired now. I think, I think he was accused of rape, something along those lines, but um, sexual harassment. Uh, Krauss comes on and is allowed to pound me about a book I've written that he has clearly not read, has not read. And my mic is shut off and the camera is not on me. So it gives the impression to the audience that I must agree. That I must go, okay, well, I guess that's true. But it actually wasn't true. I didn't agree. And I just took the mic off and I left. There was no point in me remaining there. That was BBC. It was incredibly dishonest by BBC. The whole thing was an organized hit. And this is what they're doing when it relates to the Great Reset. They are running interference for the Great Reset, which raises some very interesting questions about the media. It tells us that they must be in on the conspiracy, the public one, not the private one, against humanity that they're in on it. They're, they're trying to direct your attention away. Shiny object, look over here, because this agenda to reduce the global population, it's not real. Of course it's real. Watch Bill Gates in his own TED Talks talking about reducing the global population. 
listen to Klaus Schwab in buried among all the videos that the World Economic Forum has put out there talking about this. And again, the word is sustainability. I've told you in other podcasts to be wary of the word sustainability in, in its variants. That word, nothing good comes on the other side of that. It is a way of, of controlling the language and making it sound like the agenda is benign and boring. We need global sustainability. Oh, okay, well, good. To secure our future. I'm, I'm for that. <laughs> That's not what they mean. We saw in the previous podcast, Dr. Dennis Meadows, MIT, PhD, systems analyst, and World Economic Forum agenda contributor. That's his title, World Economic Forum Agenda Contributor, author of Limits to Growth, one of the most, probably the most influential environmentalist book ever written, 30 million copies. And we saw in the previous podcast how Meadows is saying the current global population, which is roughly 8 billion, isn't sustainable. We need to reduce it by about 7 billion people, but I hope we can do it peacefully. Hope we can do it in a fair way. And then he actually says, doesn't he say something along these lines so that people can uh, participate in the experience? That's what he says. People can share in the experience. Now that language, if you're not paying attention, that language will put you to sleep. When people are talking about a shared experience, I'm thinking like, oh, you mean like the great American screen machine at Six Flags? You're talking about, you know, us going to an IMAX theater? You're talking about a, a party on the beach? <laughs> the shared experience they're talking about is offing 7 billion people. They mean this. And again, this is all public. Look at their own talks. I attended the World Economic Forum. I have been to Davos, Switzerland. I have sat and talked with these people. And they talk exactly like the Nazis of the 1930s and 40s. They talk in a, in a, in a language that is meant to deceive. It's interesting, it's very interesting that during the, I referred to this just a little bit in the previous podcast, but during the Nuremberg um, depositions, that is, you know, the Nuremberg trials, uh, which took place post-World War II, it was the trials of the major Nazi war criminals and then later some, some minor ones. During the depositions that preceded the trial, lawyers for the prosecution kept encountering this term, final solution, which the West had never heard. They kept encountering, and they finally stop a guy and say, whoa, whoa, what, do you, what, what is this final solution thing? And they realize that it is code for the annihilation of European Jews. You see how language is hijacked. Abortion was initially a word meant to hide what's actually happening, which is the killing of a child. Abortion was a word that started to begin used in, the, uh, in a big way in the 1960s and 70s. 
and it was code. It was meant to... Now, now abortion, that word is freighted with the real meaning. We all know what it really means now. But it was initially code. And so when you hear the globalists using the word sustainability for the common good, for the good of the planet, know that nothing good is in, involved in that. Nothing good comes on the back side of that. So here you have, you know, media running, a, you know, interference for Schwab. And in fact, listen to this. This is, this is what BBC actually wrote. It's laughable about the Great Reset. Believers in Believers spin dark tales about an authoritarian socialist world government run by powerful capitalists and politicians, a secret cabal that is broadcasting its plan around the world. In the hands of a diverse group of online activists, the Great Reset has been transformed from a call to encourage people to think about a sustainable future to a sinister plot against humanity. What is funny about this is that this statement is exactly what the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab want to do. The only thing that isn't true in this is a secret cabal. They're not a secret cabal. They're out in the open. This is all right there for us to see. So again, be wary of the term, a sustainable, uh, of the word um, sustainability in its, in its variance. And let's Let's position what BBC just wrote there against this Schwabism, this thing that Schwab himself said. To achieve a better outcome in the post-pandemic era, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every country from the United States to China must participate. And every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. This is about more than putting paper and plastic in the right recycling bins. This is more than electric cars. This is more than, you know, people, let's make sure we pick up the trash and put it in the prop proper place. It's about a great deal more than that. He's talking about changing every aspect of human society, and he's been elected to nothing. He's self-appointed. Self-appointed. Now, if your neighbor said something like this, you'd write him off as a nut. You would think that members of our government would just dismiss him as a nut. But according to The Hill, the Biden administration has expressed devotion to Schwab's agenda. Devotion to it. You can see uh, John Kerry expressing devotion to it. He's spoken at the World Economic Forum. This is about a total global overhaul. And as I've said before, <laughs> fate has chosen Klaus Schwab to play the role of real-life Bond villain. I mean, he is like uber-Bond villain Ernst Stavro Blofeld, sitting at the head of a long table petting a cat while he uh, unveils his plan for global domination. I mean, it's like the World Economic Forum is the real-life specter. 
I mean, those movies that you watched as a kid and that are meant to be kind of outlandish and ridiculous where, you know, Bond is fighting these guys, you know, underwater and there's, there's a, a one team and one color of, uh, you know, of uh, scuba suits and then on the other side is another color and they're engaging each other, flying through the water and shooting each other with spear guns. We're there. <laughs> we are there. So who is Schwab? Well, several portraits of Schwab emerge in any effort to find out precisely who he is. One is that he's, well, he's just the avuncular, misunderstood philanthropist. Um, he's a lover of humanity. He wants to improve the world. That is the World Economic Forum's stated mission, to improve the state of the world. Again, very innocuous, boring, nothing to see here. Another view of him sees him as a secret Nazi who is out to avenge his country's defeat in a war that he can still remember. Bear in mind, he was born in 38. So um, World War II ended when he was seven. I mean, he wouldn't have, you know, a lot of memories of the Second World War, but he would have some, and we're going to come back to this. The other that is that he's a hard-driven politician at large who is hell-bent on turning his brainchild, the World Economic Forum, into a global office of governance situated at Davos, Switzerland. And then yet another is that he's really just a smarmy Mr. Networker guy. Who likes nothing more than to rub elbows with important people? I said this on uh, Steve Bannon's show, and I think, I think he liked this. I said that the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, when I was there this year in January, high in the mountains, you know, in the Alps in Switzerland, <laughs> again, just like Ernst Stavro Blofeld's, you know, uh, you know, the one played by Telly Savalas and What's that movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service, you know, situated high in the mountains, you know, where, I mean, it's, it's just like this. And um, I said that that annual meeting there was like, it felt like the Oscars for globalists. I mean, everybody who was anybody was there for the red carpet to have their picture taken you know, in front of the World Economic Forum background and to, to rub elbows with other people. These are elitists, ladies and gentlemen, not elites. Don't call them elites. I'm on a mission to change the way people speak about them. Don't call them elites. That's a compliment to them. Elitists. These are people who think they're better than you. They are snobs. They are arrogant in the extreme. And, um, Schwab, in reality, again, he was born in Ravensburg, Germany in 1938. His father, Eugen Schwab, was the director of Escher Weiss AG. And um, some would suggest that he's a, you know, was himself a, uh, a Nazi. He was a, he was a member of the Nazi party, as almost everybody was. Uh, regardless, whatever, whatever Eugen Schwab's sins were, as a Christian, I don't think that those rest on Klaus Schwab's shoulders. I mean, who his father was, who his mother was, isn't relevant except in terms of telling a story, a little bit about who he was and, and the, uh, the milieu in which he was raised. Schwab's father 
was charged with the production of heavy water. That's what Escher Weiss did. They produced heavy water for the Norsk hydro plant in, uh, in Norway for the production of the, the, the Germans were trying to produce an, an atomic weapon with the use of heavy water. They didn't, they didn't achieve it. This was Heisenberg's goal, never happened. Uh, but this is what they were doing. This is what Schwab's father was charged with doing, the production of heavy water for the production of, a, uh, of an atomic bomb. Now, we do know that Escher Weiss, his father, that they were using uh, slave labor, which is just a way of saying that you were using Jews mostly um, and prisoners of war. Many companies were in Germany at this particular time. But was Klaus Schwab, is Klaus Schwab, is he an anti-Semite? I don't think we can say that he is. So while there are those who want to say that Klaus Schwab is a Nazi, I immediately dismiss that. And let me explain to you why. First of all, Yuval Noah Harari, who is, his, who, who is a guy that he has platformed a lot, kind of a right-hand man with the World Economic Forum, another agenda contributor who we will talk about later in another podcast, is a guy that in a recent interview said that AI can rewrite a better Bible. AI can create a perfect religion. <laughs> think about that. I mean, think of the ambitions and the arrogance of these people. But Yuval Noah Harari is an Israeli. He's a Jew. He's also a homosexual. And he's evil. He is evil. You should hate everything about that guy. So I don't think we can say Schwab is an anti-Semite. Also, he's been given, an, he's been given an honorary doctorate by Ben-Gurion University in Israel. So again, I don't think we can say that he is an anti-Semite and therefore he can't be a Nazi. Nazism by definition is anti-Semitic, but I do believe that Klaus Martin Schwab is a fascist, not a Marxist. You, you can't be insanely rich as Schwab is, as Goodman points out in his book, Davos Man. You can't be insanely rich and a Marxist. Yeah, I mean, you just can't. The two do not go together. The ideologies do not mix. It's like saying you're a Red Sox fan and a Yankees fan. Can't be both. Or in my neck of the woods, an Auburn fan and an Alabama fan. You got to be one or the other. You can't be both. But the, the allegiance of both fan bases will demand you choose one or the other. So you can't be uh, insanely rich and a Marxist. And you can't be a Nazi if you're not, a, if you're not an anti-Semite, but you can be a fascist. You can be a fascist. And that's because fascism, fascism over and against Marxism or socialism, which maintains that the means of production, there's no private property, it's all owned by the state. But fascism does allow for private property, but it's strictly regimented, controlled by the government for the use of war. That at least has been a traditional definition of fascism. They're now trying to change it. Sometimes I should do this on the podcast, look at defin a definition of fascism from say 1940, and then look at one from say 1970 and one in 1990, and then look at one now. Because the definition, again, in an effort to control the language, they're tweaking the definition of fascism to make it sound like it's a MAGA hat wearing white conservative American. They want to make it sound like that. 
But the reality is the people who would call conservatives fascists are themselves the real fascists. That's the tremendous linguistic sleight of hand that they are pulling off in this. Trying to convince other people that they are what in fact they themselves are. And Schwab believes in the weaponizing of industry against a global population. And he is almost everything. If you read his books, you will discover that the guy has nothing but contempt for democracy. He believes, as almost all utopians do, he believes in a self-appointed elitist group that tells everyone else to do. This is a fascinating thing about utopia. And these are utopians. These, as I point out in that series for Daily Wire, the, the great jet set, on the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, utopians do not believe in the perfectibility of mankind. They believe in the perfectibility of human society. And they're, they're not exactly the same thing. And utopians don't believe in the will of the people. That term was coined by Thomas More, who wrote the original book in the 16th century. He wrote the, uh, the book Utopia. Interesting thing about his utopia, if you read it, is utopia is, is a, um, it's a totalitarian state, which he sees as a good one, but that's really what it is. It's run by these enlightened few. So is Plato's Republic, which was a kind of utopia. It's run by a self-appointed enlightened few. I'm smarter than you, therefore I should be in charge. And you find that that is also true of every attempt to create utopias. The fascists, the Nazis of the 1930s and 40s were trying to create a utopia. They really believed they were creating a utopian state. They killed millions. Stalin thought he was creating a utopian state, the perfect society. Lenin, they killed millions. Mao, Mao killed, you know, Mao killed almost 70 million of his own people. Think about that. I said that at the University of Beijing and uh, I have since been banned from China. <laughs> Wonder why. Can't get into China. Don't want to now. But I made that observation. Isn't it interesting that the, the road to utopia always seems to pass through a field pitted with mass graves, pitted with mass graves. And that's where the World Economic Forum is taking you. That's where they're taking you because they believe in the perfectibility of human society. They genuinely believe this. And they think that, you know, along the way, in order to, to create this utopia, you, you, gotta, you gotta crack a few eggs to make that utopian omelet. That's what you gotta do. And what I really wanna say about Schwab that I think is very, very important that you understand is that Schwab is very much a product. I, I discovered this the more I read about Schwab and as I, what I know of the era in which he was educated and in, of which he inhaled deeply. And that is the idea of progress. It is the idea of progress. Now, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Jacques Barzin, the late historian Jacques Barzin, who I love, he's worth reading almost anything that, that Barzin 
wrote, guy died at like age 104 or something. George W. Bush gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which he deserved. He was a Columbia professor, brilliant, brilliant writer. But he said this, in the age of social Darwinism, and in other words, the late, the age of, excuse me, the uh, Origin of Species was published in 1859. So the age of social Darwinism, he means the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. In the age of social Darwinism, the combination of the ideas of struggle, of historical evolution, and of progress proved irresistible. Those ideas were intoxicating to intellectuals of that period, and especially to Germans. Especially to Germans. Is it merely coincidence that the two great pretenders to world domination, Marxism and fascism, were both born in Germany? And now a third is arising in Germany. The globalist ideology. I know there will be some who will say, well, no, fascism wasn't born in Germany. It was born in Mussolini's Italy. Okay, grant you that. But the most famous expression, the, the most dominant expression of fascism was Nazism in Hitler's Germany. So we have three, three utopian ideologies all born in Germany and that are all... Uh, have all absorbed this idea of progress. And here's, here's what Barzin meant by that when he's talking about progress. He meant that somewhere along in the, the early 19th century came along this idea with the Industrial Revolution that you move from, from a, um, a very simple mechanism, in this case a, a literal mechanism, machinery, and that it advances into something more sophisticated. People are kind of looking around them and said, look, we, we started with wheeled carts and now we have trains. Soon we'll be doing this. Soon we'll be doing that. Think about the, I think of the cartoons of my childhood, you know, the old Warner Brothers cartoons that foresaw the future where, where kitchens popped out of the walls and everybody flew around like the Jetsons. They were, they were foreseeing the unending advance of progress, that things would always continue in an upward way. Darwin seized upon this idea and it became the structure. It's the backbone of the origin of species. If you think about it, it is this idea that you advance from a single cell organism all the way to human beings with consciousness with the ability to self-reflect, which has never been explained. That you're advancing from something that is, that is very simple to something that is sophisticated. And as we keep evolving as a species, that we will, will, will become something you know, even, even, even more sophisticated. And then Marx... Karl Marx seized upon that idea from Darwin, and it is why, because in his own understanding of economics, godless economics, and in both Darwin's view of biology and in Marx's view of global economics, there's a power that's driving these things, but it isn't God. It's this mysterious evolution that somehow figures out, you know, we would be better if we had a fin. Be better if we had thumbs. You know, what we really need is, you know, incisors. This, 
this, this thing that is supposedly figuring out how to better a, a, a species. So that's both in, in Darwinian biology and it's also in, in Marxian economics. And Marx loved this idea, combining it with the Hegel's view of the dialectic, which isn't worth explaining here, but this, this notion that things become more and more sophisticated. And he said, oh, well, we go from, you know, from snatch and grab economics through uh, feudalism, through um, capitalism, and then we hit socialism, and then we keep advancing until we plateau at the perfect state of socialism, which is communism, which of course has never been achieved. It is why Karl Marx wanted to dedicate Das Kapital to Darwin and Darwin refused the dubious honor. Wisely, by the way, it was, a, it, was a, it was a very good PR move on Darwin's part to refuse it. But again, it's this idea of progress. And Klaus Schwab was born into that era and breathed deeply of that. Did he become a Nazi? No, I don't think he became a Nazi. He is a fascist though. And he is intoxicated by this idea of progress, which absolutely captivated the minds of people in the second half of the 19th century and the early 20th century. And if you think about it, the era in which he grew up in Germany, in Europe, was a period of massive state projects, huge highways, you know, the interstate system, the, the Autobahn in, in, in Germany created by Hitler, the trains running on time in Mussolini's Italy, the Eisenhower interstate system, which has never been rivaled anywhere in the world. The building of massive dams, of moving whole populations towards creating a perfect society. These are the things that I think had a deep influence on Schwab. And you add to this that he's a typical leftist. Now, what is the typical leftist like? Well, where the average person wakes up in the morning and grabs a cup of coffee and begins to organize their day, the typical leftist wakes up and begins thinking about how to organize your day too. That's the way they think. Leftists cannot abide the notion that someone somewhere is free of their control. They are determined to control you. Conservative mindset is live and let live. You stay in your lane, I'll stay in mine. That's not the way they think. They want to control you. And that's, that's why, I mean, when you sit and you listen to guys like this, you listen to that video of Schwab at the beginning of this podcast where he's talking about the global agenda for the global. Here is a guy unelected by the global population, but thinks it's his job to set the global agenda. Who the hell are you? Who are you that you think that this is your job? But this is the way they think. And this is the why I say that Schwab has created what is, in effect, the HOA from hell, the Homeowners Association from hell. I mean, not contented to annoy people individually, Schwab went and created an organization of like-minded people to annoy the whole world. And that organization, of course, is the World Economic Forum. I mean, imagine the audacity of a person who thinks he is by virtue of his virtue, entitled to decide the minutest details of your life. 
what you eat and don't eat, what you own and don't own. Remember the, you know, the term, you, you will own nothing and you will be happy. <laughs> That's a world economic phrase. It's real. They want to determine your level of privacy and whether or not you will or won't have a microchip in you. And they think you should have. They want you to have that. This is Klaus Schwab. This is the real Klaus Schwab. Not the conspiracy theory Klaus Schwab. The actual Klaus Schwab. These people are all infected with what Karl Popper, philosopher Karl Popper, called the spell of Plato. And um, that is to say they, they want to create Plato's Republic, a kind of utopia. And they want to be its self-appointed, uh, enlightened elitists who run it. That's the way they think about themselves. And so all you have to do is go and read, as I have, Schwab's books. Uh, they are The Fourth Industrial Revolution, which was published in 2016. COVID-19, The Great Reset, published in 2020, I think. And then The Great Narrative, published in uh, 2022. And for the most part, they're boring. I would not recommend them for anything other than your insomnia. But what comes through is a contempt for the will of the people. It runs straight through all of them. A contempt for liberty, a contempt for democracy, a contempt for privacy, a contempt for individuality. It's all there. Now, the term the Great Reset is not his term. It actually was a term that was coined by urban studies theorist Richard Florida, um, who was talking about uh, the great economic crisis, 2007-2008, and uh, that that was going to bring about certain societal convulsions and change the way people lived. We discussed this a little more in the podcast on the World Economic Forum. But the point is that Klaus Schwab, I, I, was, I was trained as an academic that you don't do this. You don't plagiarize other people's stuff. Now, I will tell you this. It is easy to mistakenly do that. It's a part of the reason why I don't listen to other people's podcasts. And it is because I don't want to, to um, accidentally steal someone else's ideas and attribute them to myself. I want to give credit where credit is due, where, uh, where I can do that. It is awfully easy, particularly if you have a good memory when you're reading books and so on, to use someone else's ideas or someone else's phrasing. It happens. Uh, even among people who are highly ethical in the way they go about doing their work. In fact, I remember uh, Stephen Ambrose, great, his, great American historian, the late Stephen Ambrose, wrote, wrote Band of Brothers, you know, which became the, uh, the TV series and Undaunted Courage, which was also a bestseller. He was accused of plagiarism. It was this fairly minor thing that he was, he was accused of. Whether or not he did it, my guess is that by that particular time, Ambrose was publishing so many books and become so popular. He was signing contracts and his graduate students were writing his books. And that one of his graduate students lifted it. But Ambrose could not say that because that would be to acknowledge that he really wasn't the driving force behind the book. But the point is that even, even someone of his eminence can be accused of something like that, can do it, can actually do it. And Schwab steals Florida's the Great Reset phrase. I don't give him the benefit of the doubt of that being a mistake. 
you know, a, a term that's so obvious like that and is kind of well known. Um, I've read Florida, and yet this is this is what he's done. So I think in many ways, what you discover with Schwab is that Schwab is really a bit of a poser. I don't think that Schwab is is a is the intellectual that he wants to pose to be. I'm not saying he's not intelligent. I'm just saying I don't think he's a hardcore intellectual. That said, Schwab, who's trained as an engineer, and by the way, that matters too in understanding the man because he uses the language of an engineer. We will build it. You can find him, you know, on YouTube on the World Economic Forum page, giving the I think it's the introductory speech, the, the welcoming speech at the 2022 World Economic Forum gathering in Davos. And he's talking about how the people in that room will build the future. And he says, we will build it. The future is ours. I mean, he sounds exactly like a Bond villain, but it's the language of an engineer. It dawned on me when I was researching this guy that going all the way through, he's fascinated with technology. He's fascinated with engineering. So that's key in understanding this guy. And he clearly possesses a deep knowledge of it. I mean, you can watch him, even at his age. He's 84, 85 now maybe. Even at his age, you can see him in conversations with experts in technology, and he, he is able to, um, to talk on these subjects and range easily over the issues that they are discussing. But like most engineers that I've known, like most people who are educated in the social sciences, I've noticed this with the, um, the so-called new atheists guys that we've made reference to on this podcast, guys I know, like, uh, and, and know reasonably well, or new in the case of Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, others, what you discover is, is that their knowledge of great literature is often very shallow. And so when you read Schwab's books, you'll see that he's making reference to Boccaccio, to Daniel Defoe to Ernest Hemingway, but you don't get the sense that he knows those books the way you know old friends. And by the way, when you know classical literature, when you really know literature, those books become like old friends to you. You can see, you can see a particular sentence on a page. You can remember it. The more he fed his hungers, the more ravenous they became. Oscar Wilde, picture of Dorian Gray, always stuck in my head. My references to Dostoevsky and others on this particular show, you don't get the sense that Klaus Schwab has an intimate relationship with that literature. And you may think, well, that doesn't matter. Well, I think it does matter because apart from, apart from an education in Christianity that is rooted in the Bible, the only other thing that I think that can give you a good Western moral core is Western literature, is excellent Western literature, which is, of course, drawn from Scripture, largely. You can't, you can't hope to read the Western canon, the Western literary canon, and understand it if you don't have some understanding of the Bible. Shakespeare is unintelligible. 
apart from having some kind of understanding of the Bible because he's quoting it or making reference to it constantly. It's just that you would miss what he's talking about. You wouldn't get the full import of what he's saying. And Schwab clearly isn't a Christian. He's an atheist, that's obvious. Doesn't even appear to have actually struggled with the question of God's existence. And his engineering mind has never really fathomed the depth of Western literature. He just quote minds it to try to make his TV manual books, and that's the way they read, sound better. Now, I know that there's a conspiracy theory out there that he says that we need to rid the world of useless eaters. This is, again, this is a setup for easy fact-check stuff. Does he want to rid the world of, quote-unquote, useless eaters? <laughs> Obviously. But... Publicly, at least, he's never said that. So what happens is USA Today or Newsweek or BBC or Reuters runs a fact check and they say, it is alleged online, all over Twitter, all over social media, in the dark corners, these tin hat wearing, MAGA hat wearing conspiracy theorists are saying that Klaus Schwab says we need to rid the world of useless eaters. He says it in one of his books, but he doesn't. And so that becomes, for them, kind of a headshot on criticisms of Schwab. But the fact is, while he never said that actually publicly that I know of, it is obviously a core part of his ideology. And without the Christian faith to restrain him, to give him respect for humanity, without a deep understanding of Western literature to give him some measure of moral education, what a guy like this does, an engineering mind like this without restraint on it, begins to think that whatever can be done technologically should be done. Think about that. That is viewed as a kind of progress. Now, someone with sense would say, well, cloning is possible, but we should not do it. It is possible to, to efficiently exterminate millions of people, but we shouldn't do it. It is possible to have mass surveillance on a global population. It is possible to brain chip them, but we shouldn't do it. But that's not the way an engineer thinks whose mind has no restraint. If it can be done, it should be done. I thought it was interesting that I saw just a couple of days ago, someone tweeted, I don't know who the guy was, but he had tweeted, must, must be very knowledgeable in this issue. Hey, why don't you ask me questions about how you think artificial intelligence is going to make the world better? And Elon Musk responded, did you see this? Elon Musk responded and said that his question was, how long before artificial intelligence destroys us all? Meaning that Musk has the wisdom. He's not a Christian, but obviously his moral core is a Judeo-Christian, vaguely, moral core. And he's saying, the, the first guy is asking the question is basically saying what can be done should be done. And Musk is saying what can be done maybe shouldn't be done. Maybe it shouldn't be done. And artificial intelligence, he has been warning all along, is incredibly dangerous. He's also been warning that Schwab and the World Economic Forum are incredibly dangerous. And he would know. 
But you can too, because again, all of this is public. So my sense is that behind all the big ideas and all the Davos hobnobbing, you begin to detect with Klaus Schwab a bit of sophistry, a man whose mind lacks a formal moral education in the humanities, that the humanities and the Christian faith uh, can impart. He doesn't have it. Schwab is a, a technocrat. He's a technocrat. At bottom, I realize the guy's a technocrat. Now, if that sounds less dangerous to you, it shouldn't. Because, as I've been saying throughout this podcast, Schwab has been greatly, greatly influenced by the milieu of his childhood, of that social Darwinian idea of human progress, that we keep moving in that direction. And it's what led him to make the grandiose proclamation, the future is built by us. And he, by us, meaning the people in this room, he doesn't mean you. He means the future is built by the people who are in that room, who are all themselves elitists, globalists who buy in to the agenda. Now, other things that he was influenced by that are very important to this discussion is a series of apocalyptic academic works. Those works are The Predicament of Mankind. Again, we referenced these in the previous podcast on the, uh, the World Economic Forum, but The Predicament of Mankind was put out by a think tank called the Club of Rome in 1970. It's a very short paper. You can find this online. The most important parts of it are about... Mm, it's maybe about 30, 35 pages. And uh, in it, they're laying out, you know, hey, we have a, we have a massive problem. And it's, a, it's apocalyptic. It is, a sec, it is secular apocalyptic literature. So is Limits to Growth, which I mentioned earlier. Dr. Dennis Meadows, World Economic Forum agenda contributor, wrote it in 1972. 30 million copies sold secular apocalyptic literature. The First Global Revolution published by the, the Club of Rome in 1991, secular apocalyptic literature. And by the way, by the way, the, the first global revolution in it, it says, I've read it, I've read all of these. In it, it says that, the, that we must create basically the noble lie, you know, Plato's noble lie, to convince people in order to unite them, we need to convince them that we are facing a, um, an economic and environmental Armageddon. And thus, it says, we create this idea and we, we stir the pot on this idea. We create fear over this idea in order to unite people. And then it goes on to say, because it says it very bluntly, it says, because the real enemy is humanity itself. So do you see how the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, all of this apocalyptic literature, it is all fundamentally anti-human. This is the stuff. Given the era in which Klaus, and we were all, we are all, I say this as a historian, we're all products of our time. It's hard to really break out of your own time and see the world through the perspective of a, um, you know, of, of the meta narrative of history. It's very, very difficult to do that. Impossible, really. And thus, we are all, in some sense, products of our own time. And Klaus Schwab's the same. Klaus Schwab, he, did, he didn't grow up to become a Nazi, but he did grow up to become a fascist. And he grew up to become a guy who was infected by this idea 
of societal perfectibility because those were the ideas that were dominating the world of his time. And they continued post-World War II. They weren't just pre-World War II. They're they're post-World War II. And then you add to that another bit of literature that had some influence on him is NSSM 200, National Security Memo 200, referred to as the infamous Kissinger Report. This uh, was meant to be uh, a private. It was a report to Richard Nixon, and um, the Freedom of Information Act has now made it public. But what is the theme of all this literature? What is the theme of all this secular apocalyptic literature overpopulation? That's all of them. They're all, the main theme that goes through every single one is that the number one problem is global population. So when you see that video of Klaus Schwab saying the global agenda, the global agenda of the World Economic Forum is ridding the world of roughly 7 billion people. As Dennis Meadows says, they want to do it peacefully. They want to do it with civility, but they want to do it with dictatorship, which Meadows himself says, in that video, go and watch, go and watch our previous podcast where we have the interview with Dennis Meadows and where Meadows himself is saying, you know, um, dictatorship is preferable. That's what we need. These people believe that because utopians all believe that. They feel contempt for you, for your opinions. This literature wasn't written for you. It was written for other globalists, other utopians, other snobs. And snob really doesn't quite get it. Elitist really doesn't quite get it. They're way beyond that. Their arrogance is absolutely extraordinary. They all believe that humanity, you, are the real enemy, not themselves. They're not volunteering to walk into gas chambers themselves. They're not volunteering to kill themselves. And they see themselves as morally superior to you. That's another element of this that's so astonishing. I was reminded as, as I was doing this research, I remembered a book that I read you know, some years ago. It's a book about the reign of terror. It's beautifully written. I know it's hard to imagine a book on the reign of terror being beautifully written, but it is beautifully written because it's so insightful. And it's written by Yale historian R.R. Palmer the late R.R. Palmer. The guy's probably been dead 50 years. But Palmer says this of Maximilian Robespierre. Robespierre was more or less the chairman of the Committee of Public Safety. The, the, again, the use of language, controlling language. Committee of Public Safety is a misnomer. They oversaw the reign of terror in France on, on the heels of the French Revolution. They sent you know, roughly 17,000 people to the guillotine, killed roughly 30,000 people in all. They'd have killed a lot more if they'd have had modern means of doing it. Here's what he says about Robespierre. It's quite profound. Robespierre was preoccupied with an inner vision, the thoughts of ills which seemed to him that could easily be corrected. The picture of a world in which there should be no cruelty or discrimination. His sympathies were always with the underdog. He believed in equality seriously and profoundly. He had the virtues and the faults of an inquisitor, a lover of mankind. 
he could not enter with sympathy into the minds of his own neighbors. Now, this is a man who executed tens of thousands of people. Palmer's point is to say this, that these kinds of utopians are dangerous because they are ideologues who place their principles, their own warped principles above actual human beings. They love humanity in, in the abstract, but not in reality. They love the idea of the poor, but not the actual poor. They don't want to rub elbows with the, I mean, look at where Nancy Pelosi lives. Look at where Joe Biden lives. Look at where all these people are and what they do in their actual lives. These are elitists. The left has always been made up of individuals who are like this. And they do it all. Like Robespierre, in the name of liberty, equality, and fraternity. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Klaus Martin Schwab. Ignore the conspiracy theories about Schwab and just look at the truth that is right in front of you.